0: And
1: we're live on the Commercial Real
0: Estate Playbook. How are you doing, Frank?
1: I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm glad you're back. I missed you last week. How are you doing?
0: Doing well, man. Excited for our guest today, Mr. Mark Allen, Army football brother. We've spent a lot of time together. I imagine back in the Army football days as linebackers, he was probably cracking back on us, smashing us. But uh, he's a great dude, super successful broker in the DFW multifamily market. Uh, Mark, we're excited to have you on, man. How are you doing?
2: Good, John. Thanks for having me. Feels weird to call you John. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm sure that's what the listeners know you as, but I know you as Plum.
0: Yeah. Frank calls me Plum half the time on the podcast, so you can as well. <laughs> <Plum's>
1: <laughs> I just realized, like, Plum is, like, kind of a soft nickname for a football player. Because, like, it plums like this, like, plump, like, sweet, you know, fruit, you know? And, like, this whole time, like, because you're a tough guy. So, I think we perceive Plum as, like, this tough thing. But our listeners are like, what a, a sissy... It's kind of a sissy nickname.
0: I don't think anyone thought that until you brought it up. Now this is going to be awkward. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, our plum, lead us off with our first question.
0: All right, uh, you know, you went to West Point, graduated from West Point, uh, started the the army thing, doing well in the army, then I think you had some some time at a startup and then you got us into got into commercial real estate. So, talk us through that journey and then ultimately like why commercial real estate?
2: Yeah, So um, I think it's pretty natural for all those in the military. I mean, you get out and it's like, what do I do next? And you talk to your friends that are military vets that are getting out and going into the workforce and they're like, well, I want to get in sales. I want to get in operations and uh, or whatever else is out there, logistics. And I'm like, you know, I was no different. So I was like, hey, you know, I, I one of my frustrations with being in the military was uh, yeah, the, the democratic nature in the sense that it was like a, a bit socialistic, like you just show up, you do the right thing, you know, you check the boxes, you play the politics and like, you're going to get promoted and to a, you know, to a certain point. Um, so they didn't really reward, uh, other than like maybe patches and badges and, you know, some, some different awards like that, but not from a from from a compensation standpoint. So, um, you know, for me, I wanted to do sales because I was, you know, I was competitive, i was disciplined and i wanted to you know to uh to go out and excel and you know the better i did the more money i, I got paid um uh, especially you know whenever you're making you know fifty thousand dollars a year as uh, as a lieutenant or or young captain so i was like you know i had friends that were making six figures i'm like i want to make six figures so anyways um yeah i think early on probably more so mon- uh, motivated by money And uh, I got out, worked for a company called MSC Software, which is uh, engineering software. And frankly, you know, again, I I was going through the interview process. I didn't know the questions to ask and uh, ended up at a company in a position that was kind of a new position. But it was like, hey, like we've got established accounts, like just go drive new business. And there were things that I didn't know at the time. Uh, that would make it very difficult to drive new business in some of the little industries that I was, I was going after. But, you know, I, I, that wasn't the thing. I, I mean, I think I, I learned a lot through that process. I learned a lot about corporate sales or business-to-business sales. I learned a lot about prospecting, um, part through the training that I had while at the company, but also, you know, spending time reading, you know, sales and, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, just generally sales books from, like, you know, more tactical to more, like, strategic-level selling. And so I think that's helped me with what I do today. Um, ultimately, I, I, I got to a point where uh, I was like, okay, we had sales kickoff. We were at Gulfstream and we were touring Gulfstream and we were getting on G5s and G6s and they were showing us around in the jets. I mean, the purpose of a meeting with the client um, as a group was you know, for them to show us, hey, what do other sales reps do really well? What are we doing well? What can we do better at? But my big takeaway was how much does a g6 cost <laughs> 75 million dollars i'm like why am i selling two hundred thousand dollar software packages when i could be selling g6s for 75 million dollars so anyways long story short uh that led me down a path i connected with another academy grad who was actually a sales rep uh well he was a vp of sales at gulfstream he connected me with a friend here locally in dallas fort worth which is where i was based and i got to talking with a guy was, you know asking me all kinds of questions and i think my my takeaway was you sell jets if you really like jets and and usually you really like jets if you're a pilot and i knew nothing about planes or jets so i came away i was like all right it's not for me and i just happened two weeks later to meet a friend who was uh, a former military as well he was a commercial real estate broker and i had told him like look i'm I'm, you know kind of been interviewing a little bit looking around And he said, well, why don't you just become a commercial real estate broker? Because I was buying single family homes at the time. And uh, I told him that I wanted to scale up and buy an apartment complex. And that's what he sold. And uh, well, I was like, well, that's commission only. And he said, yeah, that's right. But um, I think, you know, you've got what it takes. And if you stay disciplined, you know, you can close some deals and you can learn, you can network and one day buy your own property. So... Um, I said, "Hey, sounds good." I had some money saved up for my investments. I said, "I'll do this for a year, and if it pans out, I'll stick with it. If it doesn't, I'll go find another job." And everything worked out. So
1: that's a it's an interesting um, point you bring up. Like, if you wanna, if you're a sales guy, and you're like, "Hey, what's the best sales job out there?" Asking someone who sells G sixes is probably actually like a great person to advise you in that process, because I'm sure he's flown or sold to a lot of you know, more senior syndicators or brokers too. So that's an interesting point.
2: Um, so now you're- a broker. I think what I figured out on that, I think what I figured out is that the the big the bigger ticket, the item you're selling, the more money you'll make. And again, I'm like, I don't, you know, I've, I've kind of shifted. I was in my twenties at the time. I'm 35 today, I've got two kids. And I think time is much more important than than money, but uh, it was just a different stage of, of life. I think I was trying to build my career and get established.
1: Yeah, no doubt. So then, now you're you're in the brokerage. Um, take us through the first like years, like zero to three, because I think that's typically when people start to like climb and go through that initial struggle. So, like, what is year one like? And then take us to uh, where you're at now, because I think you've grown quite a bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, I look I look back. And I really, you know, I think about it and I'm like, man, if I had to go start, even the last two years, it was like the Wild West in 2021 and half of 2022, where it was like cheap debt. It was very loose and and properties were trading like stocks. And, uh, you know, I'm like still like it's a very heavily competitive environment. And if you're not established, it's really tough. So it's like I, I look back and I'm like, I just at the time it was like I almost didn't have the knowledge. So, because i didn't have the knowledge i didn't have any fear and um you know i was i've, I've kind of been a guy that's kind of like fake it till you make it and, and there were some some things where you know i just i just came across as confident and i knew what i was talking about but half the time i didn't really know what i was talking about um, but but from a very high level commercial real estate brokerage is, you know, I talk about it as a three-legged stool. So you got to be good at sales, you got to be good at marketing and branding yourself, and you got to be good at finance. And um, you know, I think when it comes down to it, I was doing something a little bit different in my space and my niche, uh, which is the multifamily sector in specifically Dallas Fort Worth. And I was doing a podcast, I was doing a newsletter. And I was just, you know, and what I've learned now is kind of like I call the presence pyramid. So at the top of the presence pyramid, you've got, you know, more like face to face interaction, one on one with clients. Maybe that's a lunch meeting or something like that. Uh, whereas the middle is maybe more like a networking event or something like that, where you kind of bounce around meeting multiple people, you know, for a short period of time. And then maybe that's email blasts and things like that, newsletters uh, some things like that. And then the very bottom would be like much broader presence. That would be, you know, social media. So, um, and I, and I got that from a commercial real estate coach that I haven't subscribed to, but I read his blog posts every now and then. So he actually coined that the presence pyramid. And I think, you know, if I look back, that's, that's probably what I was doing. Well, I was just, I was like, just trying to be everywhere, And, you know, I was sending postcards, I was making cold calls, I was showing up at networking events, I was sending emails and all this kind of stuff. And I just wanted to stay top of mind. Um, And I think through that, that plus, you know, discipline action over time, and, and, um, you know, a bit of hustle, and it all started to, like, come together. So.
0: And what are those things? that new brokers have that make them successful? I think you listed some of them, right? But now you're, I'm sure, hiring younger brokers and trying to give them, you know, good guidance, good direction as they get started. You know, how can you, how can someone do that? Commercial real estate's an intimidating place. And if, you know, brokerage is commission only, that that can be a scary thing for people. So how do you mentor younger brokers getting into it?
2: Yeah, It was kind of, I mean, we've, we've transitioned a bit away. Like the Marcus and Millichap model is more so, uh, you know, capture the, the 22 to 25 year old that's pretty fresh out of college, maybe with a little bit of work experience and then train them. It's, you know, it, and it's it's a little bit backwards in the sense that, you know, most su- successful commercial real estate um, investors and syndicators are usually, you know, like 40s, 50s, 60s and even 70s um, and, and maybe even 80s. Uh, you know, and then you've got, you know, a bunch of commercial real estate brokerages tends to be a young man game, a young, young, I shouldn't say man, a young person's game. Um, uh, because, you know, we have, uh, we have females here on the team as well and they knock it out of the park, but, um, you know, it's a young person's game and, and it's, it's easier to, I guess, hustle and spend that time and grind, especially early on as you try to build up, um, you know, early on when you don't have, when you're not married and you don't have kids, but that being said, it's hard to relate to those clients who are, you know, in a different stage of life who may be 50 with kids who are teenagers. Um, so we, we've tend to kind of shift our model and go after people that are, that are like more in mid thirties, mature work experience, have, you know, have, have families, um, and not, not that that's the exact target, uh, cause we do have some young folks as well that do really well, but, um, generally, I think it, if I were to boil it down to answer your question, to boil it down to just two things, it's it's like discipline and grit, um, because if you're coming in and like you say, John, like chopping wood each day. Uh, You you do the fundamentals and the fundamentals, like we track KPIs here, key performance indicators, and those are going to be at its most fundamental, at the very bottom, it's going to be your phone calls and your your face-to-face meetings to build and foster relationships. And if you do those in and out, I say, I mean, if you can make... And at the very low end, if you can make a hundred calls a week and you can have two face-to-face meetings minimum, and you can do that consistently, like you're going to get deals and it's going to snowball over time. So anyways, to answer your question, I think, I think discipline and grit. And it's, I mean, it's hard to find. It's like, you know, it's, it's easy to, to, uh, I guess, interview and kind of portray that. Um, but when it comes down to it, you know, is, um, you know, t- it's like uh, t- talk is cheap kind of thing. It's like, you know, action got to follow the talk. Um, and a lot of people are just talk.
1: How is was your, uh, I don't know if you mentioned social media in your answer. You talked about the phone a lot, but um, I know you're, you started hustling on social media, especially over the past two years or so. I've, I've seen your effort increase there just like ours has. How has that changed your, uh, your marketing strategy? Like how much of your Deals or leads, if any, are actually coming from Twitter, LinkedIn, and all the other stuff you do.
2: Yeah, again, I think it goes back to the presence pyramid, where that, where you know, social media is broad presence, and it's like one of those things that that you know, it's like I'm staying top of mind. It's difficult to measure. Um, I have had people reach out and say, "Hey, I'm thinking about selling this property because maybe it's like, you know, they see my post or something like that. I already have a pre-existing relationship, and maybe that relationship was established." initially through a cold call and i've you know maybe i've taken them to a dallas stars game and and had a lunch meeting and then you know or whatever the case and maybe just that post is like i gotta i gotta get mark a call um so there there's value in that i would say generally i think for me especially more in the private capital space so uh, I guess for your listeners, I'm, I'm, most of my properties are kind of five to about $30 million in deal size. And that tends to be private investors uh, that tends to be who are, who are using their own money or maybe, you know, two or three investors getting together. Um, in a tick scenario, it could be a private syndicator um, who's going to put up some of the money themselves as the general partner and then raise the money from limited partners. Um, but uh, anyways, I guess all that being said. Can't even remember where I was going with that now. I was just yeah. asking like oh, leads
1: probably. on social media, but I think you, you took us down another path, which is good too. <laughs> no problem.
2: Yeah. So and anyways, generally, I think I'm I'm, I'm dealing with, uh, uh, you know, in the private capital space. And uh, I think they tend to be probably, probably more on social media than maybe some of the institutional players, but I could be wrong in that.
0: Mark, talk to me like I'm a fifth grader trying to understand the different levels of multifamily in the DFW area, right? Like let's let's say you, you got a five unit multifamily and then you've got a 50 unit, a hundred unit, and then, you know, however big you can go, right? Like talk to me about those different levels and how the funding and the brokers and kind of the, the culture of buying and selling differs in those different levels.
2: Yeah, uh, so, and, and I would say under $3 million space, um, you tend to have more private capital. I mean, it's just an investor. I mean, you, there's probably a little bit less syndication um, because they're, they're smaller deals. Uh, buyers tend to not want to spend you know fifteen to $20,000 on an attorney. So you tend to see promulgated contracts. You tend to see more buyer representation uh, from, from a brokerage standpoint. Um, and, and, I'll talk a little bit about the larger deals and what you see there as far as a brokerage standpoint, and then you tend to see probably more bank debt than you do agency. Um, and agency would be Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And I can talk to that if you want to, want to talk through, uh, the differences in debt for multifamily and how it differs from other commercial real estate asset classes. Um, when you, when you scale up and you go to, you know, the, the 50 unit, you know, and up deal, that's $5 million and up. Uh, that's when you tend to have a little more sophistication. You tend to see more syndicators, uh, than you do the private capital and kind of the five to maybe $25 million space. And I'm speaking my my experiences here in Dallas, Fort Worth. So the, the culture here may be very different from Los Angeles, which may be different from New York city or Miami. Um, but, um, uh, so, so with the larger deals, you tend to, you, you tend to have, uh, maybe a little more agency debt, which is non-recourse. Uh, Freddie and Fannie have a small balance product, which is $7.5 million and under for loan size. Um, and uh, you, you, you sometimes maybe have some buy-side representation, but maybe not as often. Um, and uh, so, so typically in some of the larger deals, the buyers are sophisticated and they're represented more so by their attorney. So you have a listing broker who creates a market uh, and traditionally this is how it's been, you know, over the past several years, because it's been a seller's market. So they create a market, uh, put, put it out for a bid process with a 30 day, uh, marketing with a call for offers. Um, and then, you know, maybe a best and final round or like two, three or four best and final rounds, uh, which is how it's been the last two years or so, but it's not really the same today. Um, so anyways, you, you, you uh, you tend to see more of that, I guess, with just one listing broker. And we've had so much demand that we're putting the the property out to market. And we're going to procure 10, 20, 30, 40 plus offers, depending on probably the quality of the deal and the the location and a variety of different factors. And then I feel like once you get, you know, probably over 25 million, it it tends to become a lot more sophistication and people are getting creative with the capital stack. So it's not just like debt and then equity. It may be debt preferred equity. It could be MES debt on top of that. It could be, uh, you know, it could be JV, you know, equity. It could be just LP syndication money still on top of pref pref equity. So there's just a lot of different like, you know, structures. And I think people have that level of sophistication where they can, you know, they're starting to work maybe even on $25 million and up deal sizes for 1980s and newer properties like institutional capital as well. Companies like Blackstone or KKR um and then i you know the larger the deal you get almost like the broker it's it's weird like the the big deals that i've done like the you know 50 million dollar and up deals that i've done the brokers at a certain point like they just kind of step out of the way and uh the the transaction kind of runs itself unless they need to be inserted and kind of like you know talk through some business points but a lot of times like the seller and buyer and their attorneys are talking to, to each other. So that's probably, I would say like the biggest difference between the, the different transaction sizes.
1: Is there um within your brokerage or maybe other brokerages, is there like a, a, a hill that brokers have to climb to get to those $25 million deals? Like what's the barrier from someone going and doing a $5 million deal to a $25 million deal plus.
2: You know, I mean, I, I think, I think it's really like, team brand reputation so like i mean if you join cbre or jll as a commercial real estate broker you're going to have to start at the bottom and you got to start as like you know a a, you know forty thousand dollar salary as an analyst and you've got to prove yourself and work your way up and you know hopefully at one point they give you a producer role is what they call it um but it takes time and you gotta you gotta kind of earn your stripes uh well if you're at if you're at a big institutional firm like that you're naturally you're going to be focused on more institutional quality assets um so if you look at like the top brokerages as far as volume in any market it's likely going to be cbre or jll because they have all the institutional business um so there's there's that factor but also i mean it's really like i say as a commercial real estate broker, like you get what you focus on. Now, if you're at KW commercial and, you know, you're, you're coming in at KW commercial and you're in the multifamily sector, there's, there's multifamily platforms that are known that all, you know, I mean, not all they do all we do is multifamily uh, and multifamily land, but you know, it's going to be it's going to be a lot harder to swing for the fences and go after fifty million dollar deals at a KW commercial. So, I think brand reputation is one. If if you're joining, you know, a platform like uh, here locally, we have Gray Steel. You know, we have GREA, which is a national platform, and we tend to play more in the middle market space. The middle market is is more so fifty million dollars and under. Um, you know, I mean, if you focus on two hundred unit. 1980s construction properties like you're likely going to broker 200 unit 1980s construction properties um so i always say you kind of get what you focus on but there is that factor of like team or brand reputation
0: very good and let's talk in generalities, but how much are brokers making? Right. I I think that's something uh, a lot of people have questions about. And again, you don't have to tell me how much you're making, but in general terms, if someone's climbing that ladder, what is realistic compensation expectations?
2: Um, I mean, I'm going to say anywhere from 20,000 to, you know, 30 million. (laughs) And there's a broad range, but I I would say it's like the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, like probably 80% are going to be making, you know, under a few hundred thousand dollars um, a year. And then the the cream of the crop, the top 20% are going to be, you know, seven figure, you know, maybe eight figure earners. Um, I know the top broker in our market, (laughs) which uh, I, I tweeted about this and he shot me a text. He's, he's got a big ego and I'm sure he's not going to listen to this. So, <laughs> But anyways, he shot me a text like, why are you posting about how much I make? I said, I didn't mention any names. And uh, he said, yeah, but everyone's like tagging my company and and saying, is it, is it this guy? And uh, anyways, I was like, I could be talking about your competition at CBRE. You don't know. But um, anyways, yeah, the, the top guy on our market probably probably earns about $25 million. But you got to think like... The top commercial real estate asset class, as far as transaction velocity, is multifamily across the country, uh, as far as volume and velocity. And then the top market in the country is DFW. So uh, we're we're uh, fortunately in a really good market and in uh, uh, a really good asset class.
1: I'm gonna I'm not gonna let you escape so easy. What does a 70th percentile person make? Because I think that's that's the number that the listener is looking for. A 70th percentile. They're not top, but they're like. Solidly good.
2: I think we had, I mean, we, we've got a pretty big team. Um, I want to say we had 14 brokers last year. We just had a 15th. And I want to say, and, and last year we had a down year towards the, the latter half of the year. But I think we had five people at or right around, you know, uh, I'm going to say a, a million in gross commission or, or more. Um, but you know, with commission splits, that's, I mean, you could almost, you can almost chop it at about, um, you know, the house is going to take 40 or 50%. So that makes sense.
0: So (laughs) how can I, how can I walk into DFW and buy a deal from you? Right. Like, what does that, that process look like if, you know, we didn't play army football together. Uh, you know, we didn't have a history. If I was coming in, uh, you know, How do I go from zero to like, okay, John, I feel comfortable awarding you this deal?
2: Yeah, good question. I think it's, you know, I I always say the two best places to start are either in small properties and kind of prove yourself or in secondary tertiary markets. There tends to be less competition there. And it's easier to come back to a broker and say, you know, essentially with a case study and say, look, I closed this 100-unit property in Tyler, Texas, and, uh, you know, we raised the money within, you know, two weeks or, you know, whatever the story is, um, where I had an investor come alongside me and and we ended up closing this deal on time within, you know, within the 90-day contract period. So I, I would say, like, you know, go out, prove yourself, have a case study if you're trying to break into a competitive uh, market like a like a Dallas, like Atlanta, like a Orlando, something like that. Um, that's going to help your case. Or you know, like I said, maybe buy a twenty-unit deal uh, within the market, and I think you know that that's also going to help prove yourself up. And then if if you're getting twenty, maybe even maybe even beyond that, it's like I mean, at the end of the day, real estate is a relationship business. Um, the brokers, it, it's not like, you know, it's not like mom and pop self-storage, like you guys are calling, you know, in strategic markets and you're doing a lot of direct deals. It, it happens here where there's some direct deals, but like the, the way the culture is, and again, this is speaking to Dallas Fort Worth, you've got, you know, you've got like 15 brokers that probably do, you know, over 90% of the deals. And, you know, we all see each other in industry events and, you know, we all, we all talk about different experiences. Like if you're a buyer, that's coming into the market and you put your first property under contract and, you know, you, you retrade for stupid stuff, you, you know, you drop the deal or whatever the case may be, like, I'm probably going to find out about it. Um, So it's uh, reputation is key. And then, you know, along with that, relationships are key. So, spending time with brokers who, who really control the inventory in the market.
0: So, if, if you're marketing a property and you get, you know, you said call for offers, you might have 20 or 30 offers. Is it fair to say you've got relationships and you kind of know the story of all those offers getting made, or how's that been looking?
2: Yeah, in the least, I mean, like an offer really isn't considered here unless you've toured and you've seen the real estate. So in the least, I've spent myself or one of my team members have spent, you know, 45 minutes to an hour on site. And part of that tour process is not only that buyer seeing the property, but it, it's us, you know, spending time and, and getting to know and, you know, spending time maybe a little bit before and after the tour as well, getting to know that buyer. Um, so, yeah.
1: Yeah, you're just like trying to increase increase the predictability, like all the time. Like that's kind of how I imagine that process. The um,
2: yeah, I mean, as the broker, you're you're putting your reputation on the line. Um, you know, because like, I mean, right now, I'm not, I'm not. I mean, there's listings I could take, but I'm not going to take a listing that I'm going to whiff on and I can't sell. Um, as some of my competitors are, and you know their hopes, their their hopes are that they you know are able to obtain that black swan buyer and, and get the seller's price, um, you know. But there's a little bit of uh, disconnect in pricing, and and uh, you know it all depends on the seller's motivation. But
1: that's a good point. So the market has changed both in our asset class, and you've alluded to it changing for you too. Um, So pricing is changing all this stuff. How has your marketing process changed for properties as compared to last year?
2: I think it really depends on the property because again, I mean, there's not a lot of inventory on the market, but like if I've got a property in like a war zone that's listed for sale versus a nice, like, you know, a nice class B property and a really nice neighborhood with good schools and low crime, like there's going to be naturally a lot more demand for that nice property versus the property in the war zone um so usually for the property for the war zone i'm still running the same marketing process i'm still gonna run a call for offers but i'm really gonna try to condense that that time from from offers to to contract and you know i and i just went through this scenario where i'm just trying to i i let the buyers know look we're gonna probably have three competitive bids we're gonna we may have 10 offers but i'm gonna say three of them are competitive um it we're gonna have a best and final round but that best and final round is more for vetting. I want to, we have a, a questionnaire. I'm going to get on the phone, talk through the questionnaire with the buyer. The questionnaire asks questions, you know, what what are their plans for the debt? What are their plans for equity? Are they going out to raise? Is, is it discretionary? Uh, are there is there an approval process? Um, how are they underwriting the property? I mean, on that property in particular, I had one buyer that was like, you know, underwriting a dollar 60 a foot rents when like the market's like a dollar 20 and they're underwriting like a four and a half exit. And I'm like, all right, this person doesn't know what they're doing. Um, even though they're local and they're out trying to buy deals. Um, you know, so those kind of questions that just kind of help vet through, we're going to collect a usually like an SREO and, um, uh, you know, proof of funds, ideally, at least for the earnest money, you know, I was taught, we, we hired a broker from LA and he says, it's so weird. Like, you know, there's so many people like in LA, it's a lot of families and they're like wealthy families that are, that own these properties and are buying. And like, you know, usually the buyers have like 20, 30, 40 plus million in the bank. And you got to show proof of funds and access of the purchase price to buy them. And he's like, here, you know, it's like, you know, people are showing 300 K like proof of funds in the bank and, and buying deals. So uh, anyways, yeah, I mean, it's going to differ from market to market, but like I said, it's our reputation on the line. It's our job to to vet. Um, At the end of the day, we don't make the decision, but usually the client trusts us enough to to take our recommendation. So we'll, you know, we bring all the facts. Uh, I share insight and information as far as like, I mean, even from the buyer's personality. You know, are they, are they really abrasive? Do I feel like they're just going to be, you know, difficult to work with through the transaction because there's, you know, it's like not always price and terms. You got that art of the deal aspect. So you really got to dig in and understand who they are as a person and how they're going to fit and mesh with the seller as they work through contract negotiations and they work through the diligence process, so on and so forth.
0: Very good. When, when we think about the different aspects of a deal, we have brokerage, brokerage, we have hey we're investors we we syndicate deals we also have people on the debt side right we have people that are allocating money uh, from family offices just in equity we've got the property managers out there and there's different kind of personality types with with each of those hats right like why why brokerage when you could go to one of those other kind of hats or one of those other functions and what do you what do you think about those other functions if in another life you had to pick uh, a a different part of that deal chain, what would it be?
2: Yeah. Um, I don't know, even within those functions, there's going to be different roles. So, you know, I would say that I'm, I'm more an advisory like business development role within my, within my service company where we have more support roles or operational roles. Um, So it's going to be no different, you know, across the board, a property management company likely is going to have business development uh, personnel, as well as a title company, title companies have have business development. Um, So, you know, I think, you know, I think from a business development perspective, you know, brokerage compared to property management compared to to title services, um, just using those as an example. I mean, for me, it kind of goes, I mean, initially it it would go back to what I said before is like, you know, I wanted to sell the G6. So it's like the higher value that the the service or product, like, you know, the the likely higher the earning potential. Um, So I don't know if that answers your question, but generally I think you're gonna see, you're gonna see different roles and responsibilities within each uh, service organization.
0: No, I I think that's fair. It's good stuff. What about, you know, you're, you're, uh, hopefully making money hand over fist. Uh, you know, you don't have to show the cards, but I'm sure you're doing very well. Uh, you're investing in some deals on the side, I'm sure. Right. Like you, you see all the deals you see behind the curtain on all the deals. So how do you make the decision of which deals you're actually putting money in?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, from a very high level, I think it's, it's sponsor. um, that's probably, I don't know if that's number one or number two, but sponsor and location and not only macro location, but micro location is probably, you know, my top two. Um, and then from there, i mean, with, with regard to multifamily, I've I've invested in some other asset classes, but multifamily, like I'm a big proponent of investing in what you know. And, uh, so, I mean, I know commercial real estate, but I, but I don't know self-storage like I do, you know, multifamily, um, and from a multifamily perspective, I think, you know, I mean, today probably cap like cash flow is important to me, probably more so than anything else because of what what the future holds. So, like, I mean, I definitely look at, you know, at current cash flows, like what's the which is like what's kind of the going in cap rate, but also a big, big factor as well, especially from a value add perspective is what is the basis? You know, our deals trading at 120 a door and is this at 120 a doors? But, but the cash flow is great um that's probably not my deal I, I i tend to like a mix a hybrid of uh of cash flow and then upside um so you look at that from cash on cash return and that irr perspective or equity multiple perspective um and that's kind of one of the beauty of uh i think both i mean both self-storage and multifamily, as um, you know you've you've got the you've got the ability to um I have that equity appreciation and force that equity appreciation uh more so than like you know single tenant at least retail uh, where I've, I've had clients that i you know, cause I was like, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about buying a dollar general or something like that to diversify. And he's like, you know, 70 years old. He's like, you don't want to buy. He's like, I bought that dollar general in Irving for a million dollars. And five years later, it's, you know, one, one and a quarter, 1.3 million. He's like, but you know, five years ago, I, th- I bought this multifamily property in San Antonio for, you know, for 5 million. And today it's worth 20 million or some you know, something like that, whatever it was. But he's like, when you're, Young, you know, you really got to think more about equity appreciation and kind of growing your nest egg. And then, and then it's more like wealth preservation as you get older and, uh, you know, cash flow.
1: That is, that is an interesting point. Um, I wanted to ask a question about brokerages before we get off. Because um, I don't know how, like, the business actually works. Like, I understand what you do, but Like what are the margins? Like when if you were starting a brokerage from scratch, like how would you pitch an investor? Like this is how my brokerage is going to make money. This is the overhead, the opex, all that stuff. Because I know you're you're a partner now in your firm, so I'm wondering like how how does a brokerage? What does it look like? Like what does the balance sheet look like? What does the the margins look like? All that stuff.
2: Yeah, I think we're running at like a thirty percent net margin, you know, something like that. So um, we we have been investing more heavily over the past couple of years since I've become a partner. Um, and my, my business partner, I've had that discussion where, you know, I was like, Hey, if if I'm going to stick around and I'm going to be part of this team and become a partner, and this is where I'm going to be like, um, uh, I don't want to play for, you know, for the bad news bears. And not that, not that we were anywhere close, but like, I want to play for a championship team is what I said. Um, so like, I, I have the vision of playing for the best, um, at least the top three, so um, you know with that said you know we're, we're generally running around a 30 percent margin but we've heavily invested back into the business in both people and, and technology so I don't I guess it, beyond that um, to answer your question I mean usually it's it, I feel like it's hard to start a brokerage if you don't have the experience I think state to state is going to have different licensing requirements and commercial real estate the word broker is very, is very loose. Uh, every every agent is usually called a broker because they broker the transaction, um, but but many commercial real estate brokers are actually have a sales agent license. So um, I don't know. Some some people are more entrepreneurial in nature. Or f- I feel like most real estate agents are entrepreneurial. Um, but, you know, some get to a point I feel like, and Todd did is where he was doing deals for, you know, he was doing deals for 12 years and he felt like, you know, the partner in his firm was like more focused on tax property, tax consulting business. And Todd was essentially running the brokerage team, which was a team of like, you know, four or five people at the time. And, uh, he's like, I mean, I'm doing this and I don't know why I just don't go do it for myself, but he was at a local boutique shop. So he decided to go to, uh, uh to a national firm and, and have a national flag because he was tired of losing, you know, to the Marcus and Miller chaps of the world because he didn't have that national, uh, presence or flag where he could, where he could get national exposure for his client's properties. Um, but, uh, anyways, I, you know, I think he had that, it, he had the experience of kind of running the team. And I think. I think that helped as he transitioned um, and he was probably ar- already doing a lot of, I mean, as, as uh, real estate brokers were, you know, essentially running our own small business um, and many get to a point where they're bringing on, you know, team members as well, from, from administrative assistants to, you know, to, to junior brokers who are helping on the, you know, the buy side or facilitate to transaction coordinators and all these different things. So um, I, I think it's a natural, you uh, you know, for those that that uh, are you know entrepreneurial in nature, it's pretty natural uh, transition to uh, start a brokerage. Even Very the good. guys that are at CBRE, a lot of those guys are running small teams, and it's like they have the ability. It's just like they're probably comfortable. Um, you know, I, I think one of the biggest things that I've I've realized is like. I think a lot of commercial real estate brokers are focused on the income side of the equation and just trying to do do more deals to create more income. And I think many are good about investing from a balance sheet perspective and trying to grow their their net worth through commercial real estate investing, but like like I said, many of them CBRE, JLL, these guys are running the team anyways and they could go like really really, you know, grow their balance sheet by breaking off and starting their own their own platform. Um, but many don't. Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, well, risk is its own moat, you know?
1: <laughs> like yeah.
2: that's what it is, yeah. right?
1: Um, well, we we did not ask Mark any market predictions. Um, and he's like the best guest we have for at least DFW to talk about this. So Mark, I don't know if you know this, but the the Fed did 25 bips today. So that's your the context I'll yeah. give you. What do you foresee happening to pricing in your market through the rest of the year in 2023?
2: I, right before I hopped on, I, I, I posted something. I had two closings. And uh, the third point was um, the seller was motivated because they felt like next year their property was going to be worth. They felt like they tapped out their potential. They kind of burned through their capital expenditures or their, their, their capital that they had on hand. And they were scared about, in Texas, and this is no different than a lot of, uh, well, probably a little more, a little different in Texas, our tax rates have been coming down, but our assessed values, they've been trying to catch up to actual, the actual market. So they've been increasing the property assessed values um, across the board pretty significantly. So uh, property taxes are going up and I think they expect to have, you know, 10 10 to 12% increases on the property tax expense here in Texas. And then insurance, I mean, coastal markets are getting crushed. But even in insurance here in Dallas-Fort Worth, and this is no different from anywhere in the country, insurance costs are rising because of inflation, but also because of the amount of claims. But specifically, I think Florida, Texas, and some of those places with more natural disasters have a lot higher insurance premiums than other markets. Uh, but insurance premiums have have sometimes doubled for my clients this past year, I mean, the past just couple of months. So, you know, they've gone from, you know, $400 a unit to $800 a unit. Um, but I, I bet the average is probably closer to 30%, 40% increases. And I think that's going to occur next year too. So across the board and across the country, we have rent slowing in multifamily. And I'm, I'm just speaking of multifamily. But I think this is pretty, this is like, this is across most asset classes. So, certainly true for asset classes yeah. with, Yeah, with, with built-in mm-hmm. rent escalations. Um, but anyways, I think across the board, uh, rent slowing, I think we're, we're down to about 5% average in the workforce housing sector here in Dallas, Fort Worth. And it's, and, you know, a year ago it was about 17%. So, uh, keep in mind, average is about two to 3% rent growth. So hopefully we stay in a in a positive rental growth space. But when you consider taxes and insurance, you know, pop in, the only way to offset those expenses is is to increase revenue. And I feel like uh, a lot of operators are going to have a really tough time doing that. So if interest rates stay the same, I I, I would almost guarantee that property values will be less uh, than today. I hate trying to predict interest rates um, because I'm always wrong. But I, you know, I think you can sense that the Fed is pretty close to, to pivoting here. Um, we'll see what they do in the next Fed meeting. Um, but uh, it seems like there's there's been a lot more demand as, as like there's been an expectation that the Fed's going to pivot. So there's been more demand in Treasury, uh, Treasury bonds in the five to 10 year range. So uh, yields have kind of been dropping a little bit over the past couple of weeks. So wh- my hope is that uh, anyways, interest rates are, you know, 100 basis points lower than um than they are today. And I'm speaking to multifamily, which tends to go over, you know, agency loans or or a fixed rate, sometimes floating, but they're usually a spread over the corresponding treasury yield. Um, so we tend to look at the the treasury yields more so than like you know prime or you know some of the other indexes.
0: Gotcha. Last question for me is, what are you doing to learn? right? Like you a clearly update on your market. What what are you reading? What are you listening to? Uh, What what are you scrolling? Where where are you getting all this information?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, we have, we, we subscribe to a lot of different data sources. Um, So we've got CoStar, we've got Yardi Matrix, we've got ALN. Um, These are all national sources and some of them provide more local reports. So uh, I'm just, I'm definitely um, uh, absorbing a lot of that information. Uh, I, I mean, Twitter has been a really cool place for me on the, you know, in the financial sector um, or just like an interest in other asset classes like storage or short term rentals or, you know, some, some other niches. Uh, so I think that's been a, a really cool space. I mean, there's a lot of probably misinformation, too. So you can't take got to take everything with a grain of salt. Um, but um, I, I would say like, you know, that and then, you know, I've got my like Google um, notifications set up to when anything comes across as far as like Dallas multifamily. Uh, you know, those are popping up. There's a couple of local news sources that I'm, that I'm reading quite frequently. But I mean, the, and the other thing is, it's just talking with smart clients. Like I've got, I mean, it's, it, that's probably one of the best parts of the business as a commercial real estate broker. I've got clients that, you know, have, have uh, nine figure plus net worths and fly around in private jets. And, you know, I mean, these guys are obviously you know, pretty sharp and, you know, as far as business acumen and investment thesis and all these different things. So, you know, I get to pick their brains, which is cool.
0: Absolutely.
1: I want to, add, well, I, want, I don't want to leave that topic. So you got, you're right. You have all these like high net worth clients. Some of them I'm sure want to wine and dine you, particularly if they're representing themselves as a buyer. What is the best wine and dine experience you've had as a broker?
2: as far as me being taken out. Um, I had, a, I had a buyer give me, I was, yeah, I mean, I, we're offered sometimes we're offered like, Hey, if you find me off market deals, I'll pay you a finder's fee. I'll pay you like something additional from what the seller's paying you. I, I've been offered Rolexes. Um, I had a, I had a seller that, uh, took me in his private jet to, Uh, park city utah it was vacation home and that was like i was trying to negotiate commission and he said i'll tell you what i'm gonna pay you this and i'll take you in my jet up to to park city utah and um you know so that was that was cool but i don't know nothing i I guess nothing crazy but for whatever reason seems like a lot like a big gift in commercial real estate is like a rolex so um I, i i i struggle with that as like when i'm representing the seller and i like just to you know, and usually they want to negotiate commission and, and, uh, whenever I have to approach them and I have to disclose, Hey, the buyer, I'm representing you, but the buyer wants to pay me additional. It's just, I feel like it's a tough conversation. Um, I've had it a couple of times, but anyways,
0: gotta love capitalism, baby. And I love how you're you're like, uh, I love how you're like, it's nothing big, uh, just a Rolex or a trip to Park City, Utah. Let me tell you, in uh, tertiary storage, we ain't getting no fucking Rolex, bro. <laughs> uh, that being said, uh, Mark, uh, where can people find you, man?
2: Yeah, you can find me. I mean, I'm active on Twitter. Uh, I think I'm at MultifamilyMark, M-A-R-K. I'm active on LinkedIn, Mark Allen. Uh, company is GREA, so feel free to go to – if you're interested in Multifamily, you want to go to GREA.com. Uh, you can look, we've got, um, we are working through an acquisition of our 13th office, uh, company based out of Raleigh, Durham that did a billion and a quarter in sales last year, just a boutique shop. That's, that's got one guy. I mean, if you want to talk commercial real estate compensation, this guy, they did 12 million in fees, but this, but, but one of the brokers did 10 million and like 61 deals or something like that. He's just like a beast. um, so anyways, we've got 13 offices across the country. We're growing. And uh, if you're looking for multifamily properties, we cover a lot of different markets, primarily central to the East Coast. We're working on building the West Coast, uh, but check us out, GREA.com.
0: Awesome. Appreciate it, brother. Frank, take us out.
1: Uh, thanks a lot, Mark. This was uh, an eye-opening conversation. Had a lot of fun. Good for uh, three guys to catch up. Um, but, but thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening in. Peace.